0: Good morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace. We're glad you're here. If you will turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. We're going to begin reading on the fourth day. So we'll start in verse 14. We've been in a series, as you know, walking through the various days of the creation account as we're walking through the book of Genesis together. And we are coming to the fourth through the sixth days or the days of adorning of the creation. So we'll look at those together. And God said, Let there be lights. to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said that the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's give thanks. Father, we pray that your Spirit would attend to our reading and consideration or study of your Word. We pray that we would understand that you, God, created all things by the Word. That you spoke and all things came into existence. That we see in this creation account the power and wisdom and goodness of God. We give thanks that you provide for your creation, that you've not only made all things, called them into being, and they were, but you oversee them, that you're involved in our ongoing care, providing for us. And we give thanks that the same God, the same powerful, wise, and good God who creates and provides also redeems. And your Son, we pray that your Spirit would give us ears to hear what he's saying to the churches, that we would receive it with Repentance and faith and joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin this morning to take a moment to consider the times. The times or the eras, the, the era, if you will, or epoch. It's an era in which the most powerful empire on earth seems to be on shaky ground. An era in which there is a rise of nationalism in a number of countries, and a series of questions among people around the world, what form of government will prevail? That's a real concern among many populaces. It's an era in which the world is being fundamentally changed by global exploration and trade, a moment in which the threat of Islam is growing substantially, and in which violent aggression from Islam is a more existential threat than it was in Some prior centuries. There is an explosion in scientific discovery and even efforts to begin to educate children in a classical way. In other words, calls for changes in the way we educate. Perhaps the greatest advancement is in the area of information. The average person now has access to readable information in a manner they have never had before. Meanwhile, in the midst of all this, the church is in turmoil. Pastors are seldom available to their congregations. False teachers abound. There are sexual scandals among clergy, seemingly every time we turn around. The rhetorical question is the Pope Catholic, no longer seems rhetorical. The church has tossed out any notion of biblically prescribed worship and replaced it with entertainment. Pastors are more interested in smells and bells, smokes and lights, than they are in teaching the Bible. The Bible really is rarely exposited. Rather, a short kind of message with a scripture verse, some nice stories, and a charge to do better has replaced law and gospel. The music of the church is performed by something akin to professional musicians in such a manner that the congregation is discouraged from singing and encouraged to listen rather than to participate. The Lord's Supper as a means of grace that God has given is regularly withheld from the people, seldom offered to them. The Christian church is largely populated with cultural Christians, and the Christian church's influence is increasingly waning. Many people have a growing sense that the world has devolved to a point that we have met the end, that this may be the last era in human history. It is October 31st, 1517, 504 years ago today that I'm describing when a German monk named Martin Luther does the seemingly uneventful act of placing 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg church, placing them as an ordinary act about setting up theses upon which he would like to have a debate. It wasn't an extraordinary act. He wasn't intending to start what we now call the Protestant Reformation He was wanting to have a discussion. Now, you may have thought I was describing our own day. But we remember that these sorts of changes were happening in the 16th century as well. It was an era in which global trade took off. You guys know, in 1492, Columbus, there you go, right? It's cheesy, but it reminds you. It was an era of scientific discovery, The rise of humanism or a return to classical education was afoot. It was an era or an age of nationalism as the various European kings in Spain and Germany, particularly Germany, and France and England, were challenging the rule of the Roman Empire, increasingly disinterested in being under the Roman Emperor. It was an era of great turmoil as the Ottoman Empire continued their incursion into Europe, An era of moral and doctrinal degradation in the church to the highest levels in which inappropriate activities are the order of the day in the Vatican. The worship of the church, the piety or godliness of the church, and the practice of the church had become something deeply unbiblical. And it was into that era that the Lord sent an Augustinian monk, a priest, a preacher of the word of God. And from that dark time... We saw an explosion of biblical teaching and gospel ministry in spite of much persecution and suffering that reformed Europe over the next couple of centuries and that in a deeply undeniable way became the catalyst to the birth of our own great nation. Now we hear the story of these great men and we wonder, what happened? And can that happen in our own day? Um, I just saw the man who followed R.C. Sproul in his pulpit posts that the protestant church today the pastor now of that church the protestant church today is more degraded than the catholic church was in the 1500s that may be a legitimate argument to make can what happened then happen now let me tell you luther's own account of how it happened i want you to hear from a sermon that luther preached on a Monday. It was a second sermon on the Monday. Yes, the people came to hear morning and evening sermons every day. And they were busy. They lived in an agrarian sort of lifestyle. So if you think, well, they weren't as busy as us. That's not true. They didn't have dishwashers and washing machines and grocery stores and all of that that we now have at our convenience. They didn't have a, you know, eight hour a day, five day a week sort of schedule. They were every bit as busy as we were They just weren't as entertained as we are. And they gathered morning and evening every day to hear the preaching of the word. Here's a sermon that Luther preached as a second sermon. In other words, we might call his evening sermon on Monday in 1522. It's one of my favorite sermons by Luther. I want you to hear him talking about how the Reformation happened. He says this. Once, when Paul came to Athens, a mighty city, he found in the temple many ancient altars. And he went from one to the other and looked at them all. But he did not kick down a single one of them with his foot. Rather, he stood up in the middle of the marketplace and said they were nothing but idolatrous things and begged the people to forsake them. Yet he did not destroy one of them by force. When the word took hold of their hearts, they forsook them of their own accord, and in consequence the thing fell of itself. Likewise, if I had seen them holding mass... I would have preached to them and admonished them. Had they heeded my admonition, I would have won them. If not, I would nevertheless not have torn them from it by the hair or employed any force, but simply allowed the word to act and prayed for them. In other words, I don't want to overthrow what's happening in Europe or the Roman Empire by force. I just want to preach the word. Listen to what he goes on to say. For the word created heaven and earth and all things. The word must do this thing, and not we poor sinners. In short, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no man by force, for faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Had I desired to foment trouble, I could have brought great bloodshed upon Germany. Indeed, I could have started such a game that even the emperor would not have been safe. But what would it have been? Mere fool's play. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. Luther's instinct here is so good. So good. I want you to think of what he just said. For the word created heaven and earth and all things. The word must do this thing and not we poor sinners. I did nothing. I let the word do its work. Do we have confidence in the preached word of God like that? Do we consider that the same God who created and sustains the world by his word redeems the world by that same word? The same God who created and provides for us is the God who redeems us. So this morning, I want to look at Genesis 1, 14 through 31, and we won't go that far. You all know better than that but contextually, that section of Scripture. And I want to consider this God who creates us and provides for us and redeems us. And as a reminder, I want to take us back to where we've been thus far. As we've been walking through Genesis 1, we started with the proposition that our triune Lord is the one who created all things. Look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the creator of All things. Then we considered the immature state or the embryonic state of the creation and how God was moving from incompletion to completion in his creation. Look at Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form, uninhabitable, and void, uninhabited. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters." The point here is that the creation is in this embryonic state. And I use the word embryonic state because it's the state in which it is covered by water and darkness. And we read about the Holy Spirit hovering over that state of the creation. And the Holy Spirit is at work to bring that creation from its immature embryonic state to its mature completed state. So look at Genesis 2.1 as we bring to the end of this creation account. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, completed, and all the host of them. The Spirit of God is ordering the creation toward the end of three beauties in the space of six days. What are those three beauties? Three beauties in the space of six days, always driving us to the seventh day, or our purpose and worship. But what are the three beauties that he's driving us to? First, light. He's driving us to understand that God spoke light and it was. Light by which we might see the creation and enjoy the creation. God doesn't need light so that he can distinguish between dark and light. That is so that we might see his works and rejoice in them. And we see that on day one as he separates the light from the darkness. He beautifies the creation further in days one through three by forming He forms things by separating them or by making well-ordered distinctions. So day one, light is distinguished or separated from darkness. Day two, the waters above are separated from the waters below or, if you will, skies and heavens and oceans and seas. Day three, the waters below, oceans, seas, etc., from the land. He's separating the third beauty, so the first beauty is light by which we might see God's work. And the second beauty is the separating of things so they might be well-ordered and distinguished. The third beauty is a filling by adorning the creation with plants and animals and man. And that's particularly the focuses of days four through six. The adorning of the creation. We do see some adorning in day three as we see trees and plants come in at the end of the account of day three. But the vast majority of that is found in days four through six. In recording God's creation, Moses is demonstrating. I want you to get a hold of this because it's an important point to keep hold of the whole time. Moses is demonstrating that our creator is powerful and wise and good. He is not like the pagan gods who are creaturely. He is not becoming something he once was not. He just is. He's not a being who has any lack or need. He is. He's not an arbitrary creator who creates in order to fulfill himself. He is. He is powerful. He is wise. He is good. His whole creation testifies to his majestic beauty and glory. This is our God. He is our creator and our provider, and he is seeking our good. His purpose in creating us is worship. That's why the whole creation account drives us to day seven, the day in which we worship God. So this whole account of the creation of the cosmos, the things that are well ordered with distinction, separation, and adornment, this whole account of the creation of the cosmos is driving us to the cultists. Now I know you hear the word cultists and you think, ooh, those are those the people who knock at my door. Well, that's a cult. But cultus is the word that means worship. It just means worship. The cosmos is driving us to the cultus, the worship. By the way, we get then from the cultus or the worship the word culture. And the word culture is the way of living in accord with your cultus or your worship. So you have a worship, cultus, and you have a way of living, culture or ethics, so like doctrine and ethics will go together. So today I want to consider that the cosmos is driving us to our purpose and worship to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But I want to focus on that by looking at days four through six and get even more narrow by considering God's creative power and God's providential care. Then I want to reflect on the fact that the same God who spoke creation to being is the God who redeems us. The same good Wise, powerful God is the God who redeems us. So really two points. The first is this, God's creative power and providential care. And that is, if you will, days four through six, or verses 14, where we'll start, and today I'll end at verse 25. The second point is God's redeeming power and care, and I'm gonna take you to other texts in scripture for that. So let's talk about God's creative power And his providential care in verses 14 through 25. And I want you to hear my central argument as we walk through that. Creation and providence sing of God's power, wisdom, and goodness. I just want to keep saying that over and over. Creation and providence just sing of God's power and wisdom and goodness. The heavens declare the glory of God. and The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So let's look at that by walking through these three days of filling. And as we consider these three days, consider that God is adorning his creation with beauty. He's adorning it with beauty. I want to look at each day in turn, but right before we look at each day, I want to remind you how each of the first three days map onto the next three days, if you've forgotten this. Day one, light is separated from darkness. God speaks the light of the being. We have light separated from darkness. Day four, sun, moon, and stars. Day two, the sky is separated from the waters below. Day five, we have birds in the sky and fish in the seas. Day three, we have the earth and the waters, or the land and the waters separated. Day six, we have... Animals and men. So there's an intentional accounting there driving us, if you will, if you put those in parallel, day one and four, day two and five, day three and six, driving us to day seven. God rests and we worship him. So let's talk about day four. Look with me at Genesis 1, 14 through 19. And God said... And to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening. And there was morning. The fourth day. Now you might have noticed that day four is interesting. It's interesting because you may have noticed some repetition. It is, so you know, the longest description of a day. Besides the creation of man on day six. In fact, day four speaks of the creation of the greater and lesser lights and the stars. At the same time... Day 4 describes that in six verses. And the creation of man is also described, if you will, in six verses. Now, I recognize that the adding of verses is somewhat arbitrarily done later on. However, the purpose that I'm driving at here is that both of those texts, day 4 in the creation of the lights in the sky, if you will, and day 6 in the creation of man are basically equal in length. And they are both the longest descriptions Of any of the days. It is further day four. The only day. Other than the creation of man. On day six. That speaks about the purpose. For what was created. And then moves to a benediction. So if you look there. Look at verse 14. God said let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. To separate the day from the night. Notice that two. To do something. To separate the day from the night. And let them be four. Here's their purpose, signs, and for seasons, for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens, too. Here's a purpose again, to give light upon the earth. And God made the two great lights, the greater light, two. another purpose statement, rule the day, and the lesser light, two. another purpose statement, rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens, Two. another purpose statement, give light on the earth. To rule, verse 18, to rule over the day and over the night. Again, purpose. And to separate the light from the darkness. Again, purpose. And then... And God saw that it was good. In the other days, if you notice, God just says, for example, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. We're given no purpose statement. Day two, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the water to separate the waters above and the waters below. And it was so, and God saw that it was good, essentially, when you get into day three and he separates the sea from the land. He just does those things, they were so, and he saw that it was good. That's the case on every day and every creation except for two things that are created in which he tells us their purpose. One is day four with the lights above and the second is the creation of man where we're told his purpose as well. So the parallels between day four and day six are quite interesting, both because they're equal in length and they both tell us a purpose statement before they tell us that God saw that it was good. Third interesting thing about the fourth day is it's the middle day. In other words, day 1, 2, and 3, day 4, day 5, 6, and 7 falls in the middle of those seven days. So let's take a moment to look at the language of what was created and what it was for. Moses is trying to get our attention here. What's he trying to tell us? Look at Genesis 1, 14, and 16. Genesis 1, 14, and 16. And God said... Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. Look at verse 16. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God created lights. Let there be lights. So you know in the Hebrew, this word for lights, we could translate luminaries or lamps. These luminaries or lamps in the sky is the exact same language. We get in Exodus and Leviticus... For the lights or the lamps in the tabernacle. And this is likely done. Well, let me move on for a second. We're also told that these lights or lamps, verse 16, are greater. There's a greater lamp or light and a lesser lamp or light. Notice what is not said. The language of sun and moon, not there. Now, we know the greater light is what we call the sun and the lesser light is what we call the moon. But that's not mentioned. It's the mention of a greater light and a lesser light and all these other luminaries these stars the greater light rules the day the lesser light rules the night and there's all these other luminaries in the night sky as well why leave out the mention of sun and moon likely that's being left out for two reasons first it's a polemic against the sun and moon gods you might not know this but in the ancient near east they worship the sun and the moon in the ancient Near East these luminaries are gods and these luminaries the sun and the moon are actually set there by other gods there's no sense of that though in the Old Testament rather these luminaries in the Old Testament are seen as material objects set there to govern the order of creation and worship they're created by God they're controlled by God it's almost like he says I'm not even going to name them The bigger luminary or the greater luminary and the lesser luminary. They're just these material lamps or lights. Second, this word for lights is, like I said, the word for lamps in the tabernacle. And note what these lights or lamps are for. Verse 14. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to, here comes the purpose, separate the day from the night. Now let's see it's parallel in verse 18. Verse 18, to rule over day and night. Now look at the next phrase, and to separate. Notice that verse 14, to separate the light from the darkness. To separate the day from the night. Or look at verse 15 and verse 17. Let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. They give light upon the earth. So they separate the light and the darkness. One statement. Parallel to that is... They separate the day and the night. Verse 14, day and night. Verse 18, light from darkness. Verse 15, they give light on the earth. Verse 17, and God set them on the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. You guys noticing the parallels? Now look at verse 16. And God made the two greater lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And look at verse 18 to rule over the day and over the night. So we have these statements, three, if you will, kind of statements that are gathered together. They're just repeated twice. Three things repeated twice. But we have one thing, one purpose, that's not repeated. It's said one time, never repeated, and it seems to be driving us to the central purpose of the whole narrative of the creation, Look at verse 14. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be, this is the one that stands all by itself. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Now this language for seasons, I think in ESV is an unhelpful translation. And the reason I say that is because when you hear the word seasons, you think of fall, winter, spring, Summer, you think of our four seasons. But for signs and for seasons is not teaching us about fall, winter, spring, and summer. For signs and seasons is teaching us about sacred or religious festivals or feasts. It's actually the word used all throughout the Pentateuch, that word seasons, for feasts or festivals. They're for signs with regard to feasts. Or festivals. So let me give you some sense of this. Every feast or festival in the Jewish religious calendar is tied to a moon. On the seventh moon, we'll have Passover. On this moon, we'll have... You guys know what I'm referring to throughout the Pentateuch. And so these are signs for the religious festivals look, if you will, at Leviticus 23. I'll show you those festivals. This word for feasts or festivals is all over Leviticus 23. But here we get a summary of the various religious feasts or festivals in the life of Israel. Same language as what we see in Genesis 1.14, the second part of 114 or 114 b But look at Leviticus 23.1. Leviticus 23.1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts. It's that word right there that you see for seasons. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. There it is again. What are the feasts? Six days, the first feast is the feast of Sabbath. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So the first feast or festival is that weekly one we call the Sabbath. The sun and moon, they tell us about that, don't they? The night and day, darkness and light, they mark out or sign for us a day has passed. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, another sun and moon. Day seven, Sabbath. Look at verse 4 of Leviticus 23. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord. Same word. The holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. The Lord's Passover. So there's the weekly feast or festival of worship. There's the Passover which comes annually. Verse 9, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted on the day after the Sabbath. The priest shall wave it. We refer to this as the feast of the first fruits. Now, the feast of weeks. Look at verse 15. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath. From the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, you shall count 50 days of the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. We call this the Feast of Weeks. Look at verse 23 for the Feast of the Trumpets. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with the blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. Now look at verse 26 to 27 for the day of atonement. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Look at verse 33, the Feast of Booths. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days, is the feast of booze to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days, you shall present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day, you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. You shall not do any ordinary work. Verse 37 These are the appointed feasts. Of the Lord, which you shall proclaim as times of holy convocation for presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, and grain offerings, sacrifices, and drink offerings, each on its proper day. Besides the Lord's Sabbaths, and besides your gifts, and besides all your vow offerings, and besides all your freewill offerings, which you give to the Lord. In other words, the Lord is giving us signs. For religious festivals or holy convocations, times which are set apart for him in the creation. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And the stars given to us for religious festivals, for marking out the time of our worship. Also given to us, look at the next phrase, Genesis 1.14 again. 1.14 last phrase. Let them be for signs and for seasons or festivals or signs of festivals and for days and years. For days and years is teaching about our ordinary or secular or civil calendar. We mark out the days and the years. In other words, the Lord has created us and has purposed even how our time is used. He's purposed even how our time is used. And he's marked it off in the things that have been made. So there is sacred time. And there is secular time. I don't mean secular in the negative sense. I mean secular in the non-religious worship sense. That's all I mean. There's sacred time and there's secular time. Time to participate in your worldly vocations. Again, I don't mean worldly in the negative sense. Worldly like all your vocations are evil and mine is good. That's not what I mean. I mean in the created order sense. Those vocations that God has called you to. Whether it's to be a plumber or to be a wife and mother, whatever the vocation is, God has marked off time for that, and he's marked off time to participate in the worship of God. And the creation account is driving us at that. Time to participate in your worldly vocations and time to worship God. Six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall do no ordinary work, for it's been appointed to you as a holy convocation, a feast, a feast. And you know that seventh day is coming because the sun and moon tell you so. The light and dark tell you so. Now look at Genesis 1.18. The last phrase, and God saw that it was good. Good for who? Well, not good for him. He wasn't in need of anything. He didn't look down and go, finally a need of mine is fulfilled. It's good for us. For his creatures. God powerfully, wisely, and beneficently created the sun, the moon, and the stars for our good. They govern the night and the day. They distinguish the light and the darkness. They show us secular and sacred time. God did this for us. It's good for us to spend time doing what he's created us to do. It's good for us to spend time in holy convocation, in his presence. And I'm going to come back to this on day seven, so I don't want to spend much more time on it. Here's the point I want to drive at. The Lord called the sun, the moon, and the stars into being, and they were. Just stop and consider that. We can't even fathom the solar system. The Lord called it into being, and it is. He did this wisely, powerfully, beautifully, and beneficently for our good. He spoke, and they leapt into being. He is a powerful, wise, and good creator and provider. And spending time considering the stars, by the way, is a good activity as we learn about our good and wise creator. Calvin actually commented on this. You know, Protestant reformers commenting on astronomy. You ready? The study of astronomy not only gives pleasure, but is also extremely useful. And no one can deny that it admirably reveals the wisdom of God. Therefore, clever, smart men who expend their labor upon it are to be praised. And those who have the ability and leisure ought not neglect Work of that kind. You see, you can turn on the news and wonder what is happening, or you can go outside at night and gaze upon God's wise and good creation. In Sovereign Grace, the best eclipse you will ever see is where the grandeur, the beauty, the wisdom, the goodness, and the glory of God eclipse your worries about life in the here and now. The God who spoke all this into existence is your God, and you are his people. He has redeemed you. Let's look at day five, Genesis 1, 20. Day four took me longer than I expected, probably of no surprise to anybody else. It's Reformation Day. The people during the Reformation gathered twice a day to hear a sermon, so I don't feel bad if I keep you a little long, once in a week. And God said, verse 20, let the waters swarm And the skies with creatures. He filled the skies and the seas, notice that phrase, with living creatures or living things according to their kinds. And then he blessed them. Here's his blessing. You be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the attendant blessing of God in that command will cause it to happen. In other words, what I'm saying is his blessing is that he's giving a command to multiply and fill the earth. And he's promising he's going to give what he commands. He is the one who opens and closes the womb. Now, I want to point out something here that's something pointed out by Dr. Michael Morales. Look at verse 20. And God said that the water swarmed with swarms of living creatures. That word living creatures is being highlighted in the narrative, in this narrative between 1, 1 and 2, 3, as it is the middle word in the whole narrative. This narrative is so tightly structured. There's actually 234 Hebrew words prior to this word and 234 Hebrew words after this word. Why is living the middle word in the whole of the narrative? Well, the text is focusing us on the fact that the once uninhabitable and uninhabited creation is now abounding with life because God created it to abound with life. Further, the word created in 121, look there. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature. That word created is the same word that we get in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. However... It is not a word pointing to creation ex nihilo. In other words, creation out of nothing. In Genesis 1, God creates all things out of nothing. In Genesis 1, 21, God is creating out of the things that have been made. With that said, it is pointing to direct creation by God. Creatures arose from the sea and from the land. We know that. Man is from dust and to dust he shall return. We were made out of the things that had already been made. But that doesn't mean creation is not direct. The text is driving us to the fact that there is a direct creation by God. Creatures did not arise from the sea or the land by some random evolutionary process. Rather, God spoke and they came to be. Against naturalism and the notion of evolution guided by chance, notice that God speaks and the creation instantly obeys. He speaks to the sea, fish and birds be, and they are. He speaks to the ground, plants and trees and animals be, and they are. The creation does nothing on its own. There's not a long gap between the command and the obedience. He commands it, it comes to be. No gap between them. There's no sense of things changing from kind to kind. There is command, obedience, and proper distinction. Yes, God used creative materials to bring about creatures. That's true. However... Moses is relentlessly clear that God created said creatures directly by his word according to their kinds, according to their kinds. And God blessed these creatures as those that reproduce according to their kinds. Now let's look at day six, verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind and God saw that it was good. Gordon Wenham, an Old Testament scholar, describes well what we see here. He says this, here the animal world is being classified into three main groups, a favorite device of Hebrew writers and legislators. By the way, we also see them classified this way in Genesis 7 in the three levels of the ark. Here's what they are, domestic animals or the livestock that are mentioned there Wild animals, or the beasts of the earth that are mentioned there. And small animals, or the creeping things that are mentioned there. So you have domestic animals, wild animals, and creeping things. The last named, creeping things, refers to mice, reptiles, insects, and any other little creatures that keep close to the ground. That's what it's getting at. Listen, we're not being given a fully developed taxonomy of animals according to kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, and species. We're not being given that. We're just told there are three kinds. Domestic, wild, and small ones close to the ground. It's not a scientific label that maps onto our contemporary taxonomies. Rather, it's a way to differentiate, to distinguish. Kinds are brought in and repeated in Genesis. They're repeated in Leviticus. They're repeated in Deuteronomy. And the implication is that God has created reproducing trees and reproducing plants according to their kinds and that we should not mix and crossbreed and confuse them now the point here is not to say that scientifically you can't create a better grape through crossing two kinds of grapes right that's why we all if you've ever had cotton candy grapes you understand thank god someone did that though that will be a law for israel not to cross those rather genesis is driving at a moral stance That's grounded in the being and purpose of a thing. And not a scientific precision regarding kinds. The purpose is to tell you that God made things with a particular givenness and distinction. And we're to accept them the way God has made them. Rather than to play God and confuse them and overthrow his order. For example, God made men to be men and women to be women. He made animals to be animals and humans to be humans. We're not actually included in the three orders of the animal kingdom here in Genesis 1, by the way. We're separated from them. Now we'll deal with this later, but the confusion of these categories becomes a real problem in sexual ethics, worship practices, and now in our own ecological worship, in placing the proper value on human life versus plant life or animal life. So that the same people... Who are in favor of abortion want you to give $20 a month to save a pet here's the point God created these animals as a wonderful display of his wisdom wisdom in their variety and their usefulness to man and by the way this is a lesson of God's wisdom that'll be pressed home in chapter 2 when Adam brings all the animals in and names them he's being taught about the wisdom of God the goodness of God God created all these things with great care and he created them all good. Now here's one objection I need to deal with even though I'm over time. How can we say they were all created good? How can we say that? Knowing that God created poisonous snakes and wasps, I hate those things, and spiders. How can that be for our good? Has your child asked you that yet? They will at some point if they haven't already. Listen to what Augustine says and this is really Aquinas quoted Augustine and pointed me to Augustine here, but listen to what Augustine says. If an unskilled person enters the workshop of an artist artificer, he sees in it many appliances of which he does not understand the use and of which, if he is a foolish fellow, he considers unnecessary. Moreover, should he carelessly fall into the fire or wound himself with a sharp-edged tool, he's under the impression that many of the things there are hurtful. Whereas the craftsman knowing their use, laughs at his folly. And thus some people presume to find fault with many things in this world through not seeing the reasons for their existence. For though not required for the furnishing of our house, these things are necessary for the perfection of the universe. In other words, you don't know why they're there, but God does. You might not want them in your home, but they're necessary for the perfection of the universe. We can't possibly understand all that God's doing, but we know it's good. God created all things for the benefit of his creatures. Even the adornment of the trees and the vegetation that we see on day three is for the good of his creatures. Look at verse 29 of Genesis 1. And God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so... Listen, God isn't making a case here for being a vegetarian. That's not the point. The point is, look, God has adorned the earth with things for your good because he cares about you. God has powerfully and wisely created all things for our good and his glory. He created and he provides for us. He does this so we might worship and enjoy him forever. What a powerful and kind God we serve. Yet we did not trust that he was good, did we? When the serpent tempted Eve, what did he do? Did God say you can't eat from all the trees? She said, well, he said we could eat from all the trees, just not that one. What's the serpent's rejoinder? That fruit is good. Why is he keeping it from you? What kind of God keeps good things from you? Surely a miserly God who is not good would keep something good from you. So they took the fruit and they ate. And we were all cast into sin and death. And we're just like them. God tells us in his law, what fruit is forbidden You shall not do this, and you shall not do that, and you shall not do this, and you shall not do that. There is the forbidden fruit, and we question his wisdom and goodness in that. And we partake, assuming he's withholding something good from us. This is the story of Adam, of Israel, and of us. Yet the same God who is our powerful, wise, and good creator and provider is our redeemer. We remember when Israel sinned and violated God's law over and over and was cast in exile. The northern kingdom of Israel was exiled by the Assyrians about hundred years before. The southern kingdom of Judah was exiled by Babylon. And their question was, will God save us? Will he redeem us? And Isaiah gets to that, and we read from that this morning. And I just want to conclude, really, by reading from Isaiah. And I want you to hear the promise that God's redemption is coming. That the God who created by his word speaks this promise to us of good news. And I want you to hear that the same God who created and provides for us is powerful to save. So look at Isaiah chapter 40 with me. As we read this, I want us to hear what he says. Remember, these people, their nation has fallen apart. They've been carried off into exile. Isaiah 40 verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The Lord's redemption is coming. A voice cries in the wilderness. We know that voice now to be John the Baptist. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill shall be made low the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? And here's the cry. All flesh is grass and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So what do you do, Isaiah? Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with them and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man can show him counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them... And they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? Who brings out their host by number, calling them by name? By the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up, with wings like eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint if he can create like this is he not powerful to save if he can call the stars into being on a wednesday on a wednesday call the stars into being is there any reason he is unable to save your unbelieving friend or coworker or family member or neighbor he is god His arm is not short. It is he who can call the heavenly bodies into being. If he can do that, if he can call the animals to be, if he can create man from dust and breathe life into him, then he is mighty to save. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I know some of you worry and fret over your children, over your nation, but if he cares about the birds of the air, if his eye is on the sparrow, how much more you and your children and your nation. I know you worry about health concerns with your loved ones or job concerns with current mandates or the many uncertainties that rattle you every day in the news and you wonder, where is the Lord? Can he do anything about this? Will he do anything about this? And the answer is, He is the one who sits on the circle of the earth, who called all these things to be, who cares about you. Will he not hear? Will he not answer? He spoke the universe into existence by a single word, and he speaks life into our hearts by the gospel word. He is our creator, our provider, and our redeemer. Let's look to him.